independent cinema had a great 2023, specifically in the fall and winter of the year. Let's break down our 12 favorite independent films from 2023 on Raiders of the Lost podcast. Welcome to the show, everybody. Hey, everyone. Now, we had some great movies come out this year, and especially the past two weeks. We've been to the movie theaters so many times. It's, it's crazy. It's almost yeah. exhausting at this point. Yeah. But <laughs> <laughs> There's still some I haven't had time to see, but I will get to see them very soon. And I keep seeing online that 2023 has been a lackluster year, at the, really? lackluster year at the movies. And I'm like, did you see the movies that have been coming out since the end of November? I think it's been a fantastic year. And probably since 2020's lockdown year, this might be the best year of film that we've had since then, I would say. I mean, we didn't have Top Gun Maverick come out, but true, we had... True, true, true. <laughs> but independent but th- cinema is really healthy right now because we had tons of great ones coming out, not just from A24, but plenty of other independent film production companies now. James, what is an independent film, in case somebody's not sure? I think there's a lot of like confusing discourse around what an independent yeah, film yeah. is. So an independent film is a movie that is produced outside the major film studio system, in addition to being produced and distributed by independent entertainment companies. However, they can be distributed by larger films, by larger production companies. For example, the movie Poor Things, that's an independently produced movie distributed by 20th Century Studios, which is Disney. So it's distributed by Disney, but it's produced independently. Yeah, so when a film, especially when a film is made by the distributor, that's absolutely not an independent film. So take Universal's Oppenheimer. Universal is the distributor and also the production, the producing company of funding it. So that's not that's in the studio system. And so another film is like Maestro, which was made independently. Scorsese, Bradley Cooper, and Steven Spielberg produced that film. Amblin Entertainment, yeah, yeah. independent film company. And then Netflix picked it up for distribution. Now, this is actually where festivals come into play. When movies are made independently by producers and filmmakers without distribution, they will submit their films to film festivals. And film festivals are basically a buying market. Distributors will go to festivals watch all the films, then they'll make bids for films that they would like to add to their slate of upcoming releases. So film festivals play a major part in independent cinema of getting independent films who maybe were made for a million dollars or like $5 million, or even a little, even more. They just were made without a distribution without distribution in place. Unlike, but like a studio like A24, they yes. don't have to go to festivals because they know their movies are going to get sold by distributors. They want to distribute their movies like Talk To Me coming out from A24. Exactly. Many films made independently, they do get deals in, without having to go to festivals for sure. But A24 doesn't have the distribution that something like Disney or Universal exactly. has. But a movie like Saltburn, you might think that's an independent film. That's an MGM movie. That's MGM-produced, Amazon-produced film. So a movie like Saltburn is not an independent film, even though you might think it is because it's such a low-budget movie. It's, it's because it has a, it's a creative film, and that's typically not what we're used to nowadays most of the time with studio system movies. So that's actually kudos to MGM and Amazon for even funding and producing a film like that, that's very different from what they usually do. But that's a common misconception. I keep seeing Saltburn cropping up on independent film lists. Yeah. It's not an independent film. Unfor- you, it's just low budget and very creative, great yeah, yeah, filmmaker. Absolutely. So like I said earlier, when the distributor funds them, produces the movie, it's not independent at all. But again, we had so many good ones come out. Just very recently, we had like movies... For example, Iron Claw and Amity of a Fall, The Holdovers came out several weeks ago. American Zone Fiction. Interest. Is it May, May, December was pretty recent. So all the people saying that 2023 was not a great year for movies. Have you been paying attention the last couple months? Yeah, I mean, I posted my top 10 of the year on Twitter, and I got several comments of like, how is this not on there? How is this not on this? And I was just like, have you seen these new movies? Yeah. <laughs> no, they haven't. So, I mean, 
Watch the new ones. They can't recommend them enough because some of these are our favorites of the entire year, not just from independent cinema. Now, before we get more into the episode, one of the best ways to support the show is to become a patron at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost podcast. I'll put a link in the description of the episode. Why is it great? You get perks like two bonus episodes every single week. The weekly chat's exclusively there. So if you want to support us and get bonus content, bonus episodes every week, just go to patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast. Let's get into our list, Anthony, of our 12 favorite independent films of 2023. I know everyone's list is going to be a little different. If you don't hear a movie that you thought should be on this list, let us know in the comments, on Instagram, on YouTube, on Spotify. We'd love to hear the discourse, but these are our personal 12 favorites of the year. And this is in no particular order. This is not a ranking. This is just a list of our favorites and I just, I can't always rank movies. I can't. It's tough. Yeah. You know, I feel like it's kind of a ranking, though. It's pretty close. Yeah, yeah. It's it's up there. But yeah. there might be some surprises on there that you didn't even know were independent films that I think, you know, in the animated genre, you'd be like, oh, I didn't know that was independently produced. And we did get very lucky living in L.A. has its perks of earlier screenings as opposed to other markets. So a couple of these films, most of the country and the world haven't even had access to yet. So we'll get to those and. When they do come out, most of these are coming out on the 22nd and 25th. They haven't already gone on a wider release, so stay tuned for those. Yeah, but we get access, like Anthony said, because we live in L.A. L.A., New York gets access to movies early. Yeah, people were like, how did I see Zone of Interest? I'm like, because I live in L.A. (laughs) (laughs) And the first movie we're going to talk about is still a movie that's in my top five of the year. It came out earlier in 2023, and it's Celine Song's Past Lives from A24, Rotten Tomatoes critic score, it is a 96% fresh audience score, 91% fresh. IMDb, it's an 8.0 Metacritic, 94%. That is insanely high for Metacritic, who are usually tough graders for entertainment. That's that's really hard territory. I adored this movie so much. It's a great New York City film, as well as a great South Korean film at the same time. You're filming in those locations. And you really, I miss movies that are sort of the city becomes a character in the movie in a lot of ways. We get them sometimes. They used to be more common. But I think this is the best one in years where the city plays a huge part in the roles of the characters' lives, their story arcs. It's about this woman, this young girl from South Korea who moves to New York City. And even though she had this sort of relationship with this young boy, they were best friends and he kind of, they're sort of meant to be together. Soulmates. Soulmates in a way in Seoul, Korea. Soulmates, get it? (laughs) Shut up. She lives in America now. She's adopted a new lifestyle, a new life and committing to her new life in America. And they reconnect via technology, Skype, Zoom, whatever you want to call it. The old Skype days. The old thick ass MacBooks. This is before Zoom. Remember those thick MacBooks? Yeah, they were were thick. (laughs) And they sort of have a reconnection in their young adult life until that connection severed because she has to commit to her life. And it's basically about a life that could have happened if you followed one one specific path, one specific thread in your life. She's married to an American here in the United States, and she sort of is curious about this other guy, this man from her past, this boy from her past as he comes to visit America. And I think it's a terrific film about fate, determinism. Because we all have those instances in your in your life when you look back on relationships, friendships, situations where if you made a de- decision differently, what would your life look like now? You can kind of explore those feelings in a way, and it's really intimate without being physical in so many different ways as well. Well said, man. Thanks. Well said. Thanks. It's a really tender film. It's, it's deeply moving and very emotional, and it's just about people, and there's really no plot to it. There's not like a antagonist, the... 
the conflict comes from interpersonal relationships in I think it's a really beautiful film. It's really well shot. It's beautiful uh, work on 35mm film. It made New York come alive. And it reminded me of movies I love, like the the Before trilogy of just, you know, people talking. Because that's what life is. And uh, the complications that come with relationships. And this movie is an example of the right person, wrong time kind of situation and theme. And it's really, really a great debut by Celine Song. I love the film. It's still in my top 10 of the year. I think if you grew up in the 90s, 2000s, it's, you, it hits hard because of the infusion of technology and relationships, long-distance relationships, if anyone's yeah. ever been in one. This movie really connected with me specifically because I've been in a few, and you're sort of having a relationship on computers, on smartphones now, and it's just tough to do, and it doesn't really always work out, and it's one of those inevitable things that you sort of have to move on, but you don't want to pull the plug immediately. Yeah. But I think it's a really terrific movie, and I loved it. It's funny as hell, too. Yeah, really funny. All right, moving on to the next film on our list is Bradley Cooper's Maestro, which tells the story of Leonard Bernstein's work. Bernstein. It's Bernstein. It's Bernstein. <laughs> <laughs> Bernstein's work and career, as well as his personal life and the ups and downs and trials and tribulations of the man's entire psyche, in a way. Uh, the film has an 81% Rotten Tomato score. You think that's kind of low? It's very low. Yeah, I feel and, pretty low on that. An 88% audience score, uh, 7.3 on IMDb, and Metacritic is a 78%. This was written and directed by Bradley Cooper, produced, like I said earlier, by Scorsese and Spielberg and Cooper. And Cooper plays the title role, and Carrie Mulligan uh, is the supporting role as Felicia, his wife. This movie, I, I really loved Star is Born. And it was a great debut by Bradley Cooper. And this film, it's very different. Although it's about a musician, again, it Bradley Cooper just stretched his creative muscles. And he was trying new things with this film. And it looked like he was just, he had, he. it seemed like he learned a lot from A Star is Born. And now with Maestro, he's he feels free to experiment and try new things. And man, this movie's stunning. It's incredible. It's beautiful. It's deeply moving. I was, I, I didn't expect to be sobbing at the end of this film, but I was. I was like, I was a wreck after this film. I had to sit down for like ten minutes while the credits rolled just to be able to leave the theater. <laughs> it was, it was really powerful, and it's, it was just a. There's some sequences in this that are just like awe inspiring. Uh, it's advertised in the trailer, but the big Mahler performance in that huge church is just a showstopper. Unbelievable. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And Bradley Cooper, as a director, is equaled by his performance. He is absolutely marvelous. It's the best thing he's done as an actor. He really immerses himself. Obviously, the prosthetics help. It's actually not just the nose, but there's some. There, there's basically three main periods of Bernstein's life. And so his middle age, he's still pretty youthful looking, but there's a lot of prosthetics around his cheeks and chin area as well. And the prosthetics is really, it sells it. It he looks super young, yeah. It does not... You don't think about it at all. It, it's You believe it, even in the old makeup. They did a wonderful job with the makeup, and as well as Carrie Mulligan's Felicia character. But like Oppenheimer, 
shot beautifully in color and in black and white. And you'll when you see the film, you understand why he chose the different color formats. And there's a couple of shots in this film that are the best I've seen this year. Absolute sh- unbelievable imagery. And there's one shot in particular that that's like it's like an all time film shot of the century, without a doubt. And it's in the trailer. It's uh, the the giant shadow of Bernstein uh, sprayed across the wall while he's conducting, and then Carrie Mulligan's Felicia is really small in the middle of that shadow. And but the shot is even better in the film because it's much longer and. It's oh my god! It's I was I saw that I was like oh my god! This is incredible! What an un- unbelievable movie! Bradley's career is so interesting for his directing. Two movies about music, mm-hmm. and it's something that he's not a musician. He grew up obviously loving composition, loving composers and classical music, and we all know the story. He wanted to be a composer and had a baton when he was a kid. Oh, he wanted to be a conductor. Yeah, so he wanted to be a conductor. So, oh, like really? for one of his Christmas presents, his p- parents got him a baton, and he used to like run around the house. So that's why I think he was so drawn to doing this movie. But two movies, his first two films as a director. A Star is Born a Maestro are music centric yeah. and not just music centric, but instantly different styles and genres of music. We have rock and roll, country rock and roll, southern rock and roll, and then we have classical music composition and conducting. So it's really fascinating to see his choices as a director and to see what he's passionate about outside of acting, but with storytelling specifically, being so drawn to music as an art form. And the filmmaking is so different, whereas A Star is Born is improvisational, handheld freewheeling lots of steady cam it's a uh, constantly moving camera maestro is extremely precise and controlled and he shoots very wide lenses um, matthew libatique is his dp i was gonna ask did he do yeah. this one as well yeah and he's he really is one of the best dps working today and nobody really talks about him i think deacons and a couple others get all the attention but matthew libatique he's been darren aronofsky's dp since he started he's made film make great work with other directors as well does but like three movies a year he is really fantastic he did last year he did don't worry darling um but he's hit the war the cinematography is out absolutely outstanding and ironically we did see leonard birdstein in an oscar contender last year tar the tapes she watches at home they're That's leonard right. bernstein tapes and um they touch on that he was he had a tv program for mm-hmm. a decade as a conductor teaching people about music but it's just an uh, unbelievable movie. I-, I adored it. Next up, we have what has to be a new Christmas holiday classic. The Holdovers, directed by Alexander Payne. Ron Tomatoes, it's a 96% critic score, 91% audience score, 8.0 on IMDb. Metacritic, it's an 82%. This one was so delightful. Hysterical. Possibly the funniest movie of the year. Laugh out loud, constantly, but fusing in great drama, as well as nostalgia. And set in New England, outside of Massachusetts, and in Boston, and Boston it's, guy. It's about a boarding school where the main character, played by Paul Giamatti, is a teacher there. He went to school there in his youth, but he's also a teacher, and he's just the most hard-ass teacher there. All the students. He's a Scrooge. Him. He's a Scrooge character, not just for the holidays, but for the students as well. And then we have the other lead characters are a student who's. Mother and father, his mother, his mother has just dumped him here. Every year he gets dumped at this boarding school, and we're at the holdover period of the school year and the semester where for two-week break during the holidays, kids get to go home, obviously. However, every year at the boarding school and boarding schools in general, there are a couple of holdovers, a couple kids who just get left there for the holidays. They don't get to go home. So if someone has to remain at the school, a teacher every year, and Paul Giamatti's character is chosen as that teacher, and in a hysterical 
bit of, I guess, twist of fate. These two are just stuck together with the head chef of the school as well, Mary, because all the kids hilariously get picked up by a rich student's father on a helicopter, get taken away on a skiing trip. So now it's just the three of them alone for two weeks in this boarding school, and the student and the teacher can't stand each other. They hate each other. But the movie's full of connection and humanity and just love and family and building a relationship between two people who despise each other. But once you learn about somebody, you get a little bit more about their life. You start to understand them and you get to connect. And it's a really terrific movie. Alexander Payne has made a lot of awesome films. This is one of his best. And I still think that Election's the best film he's done. Really great movie. But this is like a close second. And in terms of Christmas movies, so many Christmas movies come out every year during the season. There's, I can't think of, a movie that's that I've been like that's a new Christmas classic since Elf. It's been a while. Like this, this, there's never been a Christmas movie that really just like was like, oh my god, I have to watch this every year. This is a new Christmas ama- classic. This is that. Maybe Klaus. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Maybe Klaus. Yeah. Yeah. Klaus is great. But this this movie is like it's gonna be an annual watch for me in the Christmas holiday season. It's that good, and it's that funny. It's very emotional. It's very well written. The characters are really what makes it work. The New England setting, I adored, obviously. And the, the acting is just some of the best on, on screen. And the the actor who played Angus, this is his debut, and he did a great job opposite two very experienced actors. I expect a, a few nominations for sure um, for the Mary's performance, for Angus' performance, maybe for supporting actor. Paul Giamatti should get nominated too. Yeah, he's terrific. Yeah, and this is like it's it's not a Christmas Carol, obviously, but it is in a way a Scrooge-like tale. But it's just really a wonderful movie, and it's so heartwarming. By the end of the film, you just feel so good at the end. Man, it's good. It's top ten of the year for me too. All right, next up we have Anatomy of a Fall. I guarantee this gets nominated for Best Picture. Just Best Picture. It got nominated for Golden Globes for drama. It's that good. So Anatomy of Fall is a 96% Rotten Tomatoes critic score. It doesn't have an audience score yet because it hasn't been released wide yet. It does have a 7.9 on IMDb and an 86% critic score on Metacritic. Now, Anatomy of, of Fall is about a woman who is suspected for her husband's murder and their partially blind son also faces a moral dilemma as the sole witness of the trial. Now, this is a courtroom drama, but it's about half of it is courtroom drama. The rest of it is fam- family drama. It's really brilliant. Uh, Sandra Huller, who plays the lead, in my opinion, gives the best female performance of the year. I think she should win the Best Actress Oscar. Although I do think Lily Gladstone has a better chance of winning. And Lily is fantastic as well. But Sandra Huller is absolutely outstanding in this film. So fucking good. And it's a brilliant script. Directed by Justine Treat. Uh, she, I think she should get nominated for Best Director as well. Hopefully that happens. We'll see. Um, it's really a, a story that rides on its ambiguity. And it's really about this the death of a husband and a father that nobody witnessed, nobody saw. But she was the only one in the house at the time. And so it's about trying to, obviously prosecuting is trying to, prove her as guilty, and then her and her defense team are trying to prove her as innocent, while she's also trying to convince her son that she's innocent, which is really a complicated, messy, 
and com- really heavy conflict storyline for for the lead character. She carries this movie on her back. She's really really stunning in the in the role. She does so much acting. There's so much range to the performance. And ironically, she was also in Zone of Interest, so she had a big. She's having a big year this year. It's a huge year for the actor. She's German born, and so the film is both. There's three languages spoken: a lot of French, a lot of English, and then some German. Um, but there's quite a lot of English. So if you're kind of uh, wary about watching foreign films, there is about fifty percent of the script is is spoken in di- in, in English dialogue. So don't be overwhelmed or feel intimidated by it at all. A new international actor actress, which means which means Marvel's gonna court them for a villain role soon. <laughs> and if she was a man, she'd be the next Bond villain. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, the new Bond, maybe we'll finally have a female villain. I think it would be cool to have a female villain. I don't think has there never been one. I can't think of one. I haven't seen every Bond movie, but that's how you that's how you mix it up. Yeah, I would that's I would go with a female the, villain. That'd be cool. Yeah. Next up, we have. The new film from Hayao Miyazaki he came out of retirement for this one. He pulled the Tom Brady. <laughs> the Boy in the Heron from Studio Ghibli. Rotten Tomatoes critic score. It's a 96% fresh, 90% audience score. IMDb, it's a 7.7. I think that's a little low because I adored this film. Metacritic, it's a 92%. It is a sensational movie. Every frame and still of this movie could hang in an art gallery. It's gorgeous animation. Uh, the backgrounds are sensational. The characters are, are terrific. Great. We, I saw the actually the, the voiceover dub, the American version, the English-speaking one. Mm-hmm. Robert Pattinson's ridiculous in this movie. But it's a, it's a terrific story. It's about this young boy named Mahito whose mother passes away. However, the soul or the memory of her is somewhere, and he feels connected to her still. And his mother, his father marries a new woman. He's marrying a new woman, and so he moves into her new estate. It's about him settling in there and trying to, you know, connect to this new community he's in. He gets bullied at school, but also trying to connect with his mother who's passed away, who he's, he's getting hints at through creatures that she's still alive. These things are happening around this estate. There's there's sort of some magical aspect to this community, to this building, to this house, to this property that he's living in now. His father runs a factory for building windows and shields for fighter jets and fighter planes because the war is going on takes place in the 1940s and it's really sensational because it deals with family with loss with grief but also with the afterlife in a lot of ways as well as the soul where does the soul come from and this this movie sort of answers questions like that in a fun fantastical way of where do we come from before birth why are we chosen and there's Miyazaki does this terrific these terrific little characters that explain souls going up to our plane but also time is a major theme throughout this film there's so many elements to it to this movie that remind me of movies like The Matrix Reloaded with all the different doors that put you into different points in time in the world as well as sort of just a Christopher Nolan aspect of dealing with time in different ways and controlling time and preventing things from happening or having a uh, impact on fate and sort of just traveling and traversing different realities, but then also just this great idea of how the universe runs. It's sort of we see an engine room sort of in a sort of way, like what keep, what keeps the universe going and keeps it safe, keeps it keeps it protected, and what could lead to its demise, to it crumbling and falling apart. And Mahito is a very special boy because of his the line he fa- he he's from, and he's connected to time. He's connected to the universe in a very powerful way. And he has to make decisions in his life to follow in the footsteps of 
time or following the footsteps of family. And it's a really special movie. It's very funny. And again, it's so well animated. How was it in IMAX? It was awesome. Because you started at the TCL, right? No, I started at IMAX HQ. Oh, cool. Nice. Headquarters, yeah. nice. And uh, the president of Studio Ghibli Kids was there, which is really cool. Oh, wow. We got a little Q&A with him. But it was an awesome experience, and I really loved the film. Wow. Sounds great. It is. All right, let's move on to the next film, which is an A24 release, The Iron Claw, directed by Sean Durkin, who most famously did Martha Marcy May Marlene. This film is a 92% Rotten Tomatoes critic score. Audience score is not out yet. Neither is the IMDb yet because only a few people have seen it and we're included. We saw a very early screening on December 13th. Wow, we saw it a while ago. AMC did a special early release just that one night, that one screening time, 7.30, and we got in. And a fan recognized us. Camden, what's up? Camden, what's up, pal? <laughs> Happy to meet you. It does have a 71% Metacritic score. And the Iron Claw tells the true story of the inseparable Von Erich brothers who made history in the intensely competitive world of professional wrestling in the early 1980s. Through tragedy and triumph, under the shadow of their dominating father and coach, the brothers seek larger-than-life immortality on the biggest stage in sports. This movie was beautiful, really well shot on 35mm, and I just I really wish more movies would, would be shot on film. It just has this timeless quality to it. And the wrestling sequences were really stunning. So well lit. Performances were fantastic. I was so happy to see Jeremy Allen White on the big screen in a movie like this. Zac Efron really carried it and did a really wonderful job as the lead, um, as Kerry. Uh, Lily James is great as always, and she's really like like taking over that Southern Belle <laughs> role <laughs> with the force. Like if you want a Southern Belle, uh, hire Lily James. She's great. She's got that quality. Yeah. The, 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 the accent, but that Southern Belle, the girl next door kind of That charm, yeah. yeah. And then Colt McCallany is really fantastic as the father. Um, and the rest of the cast is great. Uh, the youngest brother, I'd never seen him or anything before. I think it was his first major role. And then the, the, the second oldest brother, is actually the guy from Triangle of Sadness, the model in that film, who's a really wonderful actor. Uh, it's I didn't expect it to be as uh, moving and emotional as the film was. I thought this was just going to be a wrestling movie, but there's a lot of ter- conflict, a lot of turmoil, a lot, of, a lot of tragedy in this film, and it was just like getting hit by a train in a lot of ways, and it was really devastating in a lot of ways, uh, what this family went through, and also inspiring for how, how they pushed themselves, how they became... Uh, so loved within that community, within the world of wrestling. And also, it was very interesting to see the early days of wrestling uh, before WWF really took everything over uh, and how there were still independent wrestling um, institutions around the country. Yeah, it was, I didn't realize how dramatic and tragic it was going to be. I didn't really know much about the Von Erich brothers and the story. We were huge wrestling fans in the 90s when WWF was at its peak. You know, Stone Cold, The Rock, Mankind, Undertaker. all of them. Yeah, yeah, so Kane. Kane. We loved WWF, and but we didn't really know much about this early wrestling world. Our brothers did for sure. I'd heard the name the Von Erichs bef- before, but not. I didn't really I had know never the story. Heard of them. Yeah. And I don't know if it's because it's a family of brothers, four brothers, and we obviously all know we're a family of six brothers. So I felt really connected to this movie and to the tragedies involved. It, it hit me really hard. I was. It's the most I've cried this year. I think at the end of this movie, I was just. It was coming out, man. It was pouring out of my eyes. Great to see Maestro. <laughs> my God, man. I was so into this film. I was invested as hell. I thought it was so well made. Sean Durkin, 
one of the best crafted movies and executed movies of the year, easily. And you wouldn't expect it from a wrestling movie. But obviously, I mean, we, we've had great wrestling movies. The Wrestler was a terrific movie. It was the best oh, yeah. picture winner? Uh, no, nominee. nominee. One best actor. No. Yeah, it did. No, Sean, I, Sean Penn won, and he said Mickey Rourke should be standing up here. I thought Mickey Rourke won best actor. No, Sean Penn won for Milk. It was a big upset. Uh, Rourke, Rourke won everything else. He won the Globe. Yeah, he won maybe the that's SAG. what it was. Yeah, yeah, but it was a it was a big loss. And uh, uh, Sean Penn was like, Mickey Rourke should have won. This yeah, one. he said that on stage. Ah, right, it's really interesting. But obviously, there's something about the sports and drama that connects them really well. And this the story of these brothers who, like you said, rise in the ranks of this independent wrestling world. And as it's growing and booming, this family's going through crazy tragedies, this sort of family curse that's following them for generations, which is really interesting because it was in real life. Everyone's terrific in the movie, but again, it's so well made. Great soundtrack, some awesome needle drops as well. Rush. Can't recommend, yeah, the Rush needle drop is epic. I can't recommend seeing this if you haven't yet, and it's obviously coming to theaters more widely very soon. Yeah. But you got to watch it. Even if you're not a wrestling fan, it's just a terrific movie. One of my favorite from A24 the last couple of years. Absolutely. It was, it was really, really well done. One of the best looking films of the year. And I haven't made my top 10 list of 2024, 2023 yet because I want to see Ferrari on Christmas Day. We're filming this a couple days before. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to wait till then so I can get Ferrari in there because I have high hopes for Ferrari despite mis- mixed reactions. But the Iron Claw, I think, will be on my top 10 at the end of the year. I really loved it. Yeah, I mean, I posted mine, so you have plenty of time to post yours. Plenty are, we of got time. One out, we got one out there. Plenty of time. I went on a movie watching spree this past week. Yeah, I think it was living at AMC. I was like driving from theater to theater. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's six movies down. We still got six left, but how about we run to our intermission, then we'll come back and continue our best independent films from 2023. Does that sound good to you, bro? Let's do it. You know what else sounds good? What? Whenever we get... Well, it looks good whenever we get a notification that someone signed up for Patreon. Oh, yeah. That's always a great thing to see. It's my favorite notification for my phone of all time. Someone signed up for Patreon, which means they get awesome perks from our Patreon, including bonus episodes every goddamn week. We do the weekly chats exclusively on Patreon as well as a weekly bonus episode of the show. Not to mention all of the perks that every tier gets. You know, going up the ladder, minimum $2 to get bonus episodes every week as well as five dollars you get access to an ad-free version of every episode that you can link to your spotify and listen on spotify which is really cool we love that collaboration between those two mega corporations as well as ten dollars <laughs> you get access to our discord Patreon's not a mega corp not yet <laughs> spotify is now our discord's private but you can access it and become a member at the minimum ten dollar tier plus we have a twenty five dollar one hundred dollar tier those get tons of extra perks the link, again, is Raiders—no, I'm sorry. It's Patreon.com <laughs> slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast. There's a link in the description of this episode. You can click on it and join today. Again, minimum $2 to get bonus episodes of the show and to support Juno's Miamix every it's month. It's Purina now. Oh, it's Purina. He moved up. He's pure. You can also support <laughs> the show by leaving those five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. They are integral to our show, getting seen by new people on those platforms. We're trying to break— 2000 on Apple Podcasts for reviews and ratings. We're almost there. We're at like 1,830. Spotify, we're at like 2,400, but we'd love to hit 3,000 by the end of 2020. To the moon. To the moon. Trying to go to the moon. As many reviews as possible. They really, really do help people get seen and shows get seen by new people. So it's integral. Also, just share us with your family and friends. It's the best way for a show to grow organically is word of mouth. Share us on Instagram, on Twitter. Text us to everybody in your phone book, in your messages send them episodes your favorite episode of raiders of lost podcast take out your rolodex and just share it 
You remember Rolodexes? Yeah. <laughs> it was just a little address book, basically, but mm-hmm. it was like a little wheel in case anyone doesn't know what Rolodex is. <laughs> it was in the killer. Yeah. There's a Rolodex. <laughs> yeah, there's a Rolodex. This episode, of course, is sponsored by our friends at MoviePosters.com, the number one place to get your posters online today. Be sure to use our promo code Raiders10 at MoviePosters.com to get 10% off your order right now. They have a huge selection of pretty much every movie and TV show imaginable in their poster library, as well as all sorts of sizes, framing, and even backlighting for your poster needs. The holiday season just happened. Maybe you forgot to get a present for that movie lover in your life. (laughs) If you want to make up for it, be sure to get them a poster at movieposters.com. They have a huge selection, all sorts of sizes, framing, and even backlighting for your poster needs. So for all of the movie posters that you want to decorate your place with, go to movieposters.com and use our promo code Raiders10 at movieposters.com to get 10% off your order right now. I will say, I haven't even coughed yet today. You're doing a lot better. I'm doing way better. And we'll see how you go through this episode because Anthony's been having, you know, some some sore throat issues lately. So <laughs> some episodes in January you might hear him coughing a lot. Some episodes in December you might. But yeah, you, you're I'm doing pulling, pretty good. You're today. pulling through, man. Was, you know, it's the humidifier, man. See, I I threw the humidifier on there before we recorded. I'm really glad since we talked for a little. Yesterday was bad. Yeah, it was kind of bad yesterday. <laughs> what episode was that? It was. I can't remember. We do so many. <laughs> 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 I honestly don't know. Um, <laughs> let's get into our intermission and start with the movie quote competition. I chose a little conversation because I think it's just great dialogue. So guess this movie. It's it's between three characters. Let's hear it. So how long do I wait to call? Definitely two days is like industry standard. You know, I used to wait two days to call anybody, but now it's like everyone in town waits two days. So I think there's I think three is kind of money. What do you think? Yeah, but two's enough to not look too anxious. It's a guy calling a girl. What fucking movie is this? Yeah, two's not enough to look anxious, but I think three days is kind of money, you know, because you, yeah, but oh, you know yeah. what? Maybe I'll wait three weeks. How's that? And I tell her I was cleaning out my wallet and I just happened to run to her number. Then ask her where you met her. Yeah, I'll ask her where I met her. I don't remember. What does she look like? And then I'll ask if we fucked. Is that, would that be, you know, T, would that be the money? <laughs> Swingers. You know what? Ha ha ha, Mike. <laughs> Laugh all you want, but if you call too soon, you might scare off a nice baby who's ready to party. Swingers. <laughs> it's I the could, money. Yeah, I could hear uh, Vince Vaughn and Favreau. <laughs> it's a great conversation. Yeah, it's funny. You <laughs> did the whole scene. I chopped it up a little bit. Yeah. I also have a couple of characters speaking. All right. What made you join the force? Police, suppress- supp- police suppression, brother. You wanted to stamp out it, stamp it out from the inside? No, I wanted to be part of it. <laughs> um, say it one more time. What made you want to join the police force? Police oppression, brother. You wanted to stamp it out from the inside? No, I wanted to be a part of it. It's my Scottish accent. It's Scottish. Um, maybe Gangs of New York. No. Scottish. Yeah. Well, I mean, John it's, C. Riley. It's in Scotland. Yeah, no, but I'm saying cause John C. Riley's accent is Scottish in that movie. It's in Scotland. Let's see. A Scottish film with cops. Hmm. Train spotting? No. I don't know. Filth. Oh. With McAvoy. You know, it's a really was, funny movie. I was I was disappointed when I saw that movie. I thought it was really funny. It had a great trailer. It had a really good trailer. I was just a little let down by it. But he's great in it. James never lets you down. McAvoy's the best, yeah. man. I love that guy. 
Okay, guess this movie release year, Anthony. Mr. and Mrs. Smith. 2004. 2005. Oh, man. I remember seeing that in theaters. It's a good movie. It's a good time. The TV show, it certainly looks like a show. (laughs) All right, what year did Atonement come out? 2005. 2007. It's part of that great year, man. Movie pop quiz time. You ready? Ready. Which Jurassic Park movie is Vince Vaughn in? Vince Vaughn is in the third one. What's the movie called? Jurassic World. I mean, Jurassic Park. Fucking the third one. <laughs> What's it called? The Lost World. That's the Lost World? Yeah. I don't know why I thought the second one was the Lost World. It goes in order. The second one's called. Hold on. What's the second one called? Just Jurassic Park Jurassic 2? Jurassic Park. Let's see. Is that the second one? It might be the second one. So we Two have. Jurassic, Two Furious? The Lost World is the second one. That's the one Vince Vaughn's in? Yeah. I thought Vince Vaughn Wait, was. Wait, no, hold on. That's the book. N- no, yeah. Went out uh, Jeff Goldblum is in that one. Vince Vaughn's in the one with William H. Macy, I thought. Or I could be wrong. 1997, The Lost World. Okay. That's... No, it's the one of, it's with Julianne uh, Moore. Yeah, okay, so yeah. the third one. No, it's the second one. That's the second one? Yeah, it came out in 1997. Oh, Julianne Moore and Jeff Goldblum are exes. Yeah. And they have the daughter. They have the daughter. That's it. I was getting them mixed up. William H. Macy's in the third one. What's the third one called? Just Jurassic Park 3? Jurassic Park 3. That's exactly what it's called. That's when Sam Neill comes back. He's back, baby. And the little kid gets eaten by the little, little oh. tiny... That's a messed up scene. Yeah, it's a funny opening. What's your uh, trivia que- pop quiz question, Anthony? James McAvoy starred in what short-lived British, British TV show that was adapted into a successful and long-running American show? It might not be British, uh, but it's UK. Oh, man, what's it called? Crap. Oh, Shameless. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. He's like the original. Yeah, he was in Shameless. Yeah, he was in Shameless. The first Shameless. I forgot about that. Good guess, man. That's a good, that's a good question. That's a good answer. Let me see if there's any new questions from Dad's Oh, did they trivia update question. the cards? No, because I have been through all of them. <laughs> <laughs> I've been through all of them. <laughs> Maybe I have been through all of them. I have, so, I have a whole pack I haven't looked you got, at. You got any good ones? Um, so Dad sent us these trivia cards. About entertainment in general. What was the name of the sitcom where Tim Allen played Tim Taylor, the host of Tool Time? Home Improvement. Yes. What a banger of a show that was. Yes, yes. yes. <laughs> let's see. Let's see. Let's see. Hmm. Who played Roseanne's TV husband, Dan Connor? Um, I'm trying to think. Oh, um, I can't think of his name. The guy from all the Coen Brothers movies. Fucking A. I don't know. Donnie! A Juggerman. Yeah. <laughs> you just need to hear an impression. Yeah. I, just, I don't know why I couldn't think of him. You got it. You got anything else? On what reality TV show do you often hear the tribe has spoken? Survivor. Survivor. <laughs> Remember, Survivor was so big, man. That was great. Holy crap. Peak Survivor, like 2001. Survivor. Top of the world. Who wants to be a millionaire? TV was at its peak for reality TV, man. It was insane. For good reality TV. It's obviously at its peak now. 
<laughs> that was such a big deal. Everybody was watching it. Every week. And CSI. It was like, it was like 20 million viewers a, a week. It was CSI, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. And Survivor. And Survivor. Three biggest shows on TV. Yeah. On network TV. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, on TV. Yeah. That's what it was. It was just TV, man. <laughs> just TV. <laughs> just living. L-I-V-I-N. That was that's, the episode. That's the episode. He's confused where I was dying. <laughs> Do we have any haters this week, Anthony? Yeah, we have one. It's pretty funny. I hope so. You're hyping it up so much. All right, Danny Smith wrote... <laughs> Oh man, someone assert me with their own comment about the pronunciation of Ari. Funny thing is, Anthony still says it incorrectly. Thank you. Though he claims James is wrong. Guys, it's Ari. Oh! Unsubscribed. So am I right? Are you right? I think it's Ari. We heard it in American Fiction. They said Ari. Yeah, they said Ari. They said Ari. However, I've heard it said Ari plenty of times. Maybe you could use maybe Go to Google Translate. I'm doing it right now. They'll have a pronunciation that usually is pretty spot on. Is it Ari or Ari? Let's see what Google has to say. Hit play, man. Hit play. Ready? Ready. What's it going to say? Ari. Oh, I win! Ari. 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 That's what's up. Thank you, pal. Just, just who's 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 that again? Danny. Danny, my man, my man, my man. All right, <laughs> <laughs> in the well, house. Well, now it's now it's solved. It's, the problem solved. Or were you saying Ari the whole time? No, I was saying Ari. I think you were saying Ari. I think I was saying Ari. I think you were saying Ari. I think I was saying Ari. Either way, this tape confirms that you were saying it wrong. That's what he said. He I said, said Anthony was saying it. I was saying it. However, you probably said it because you said it so many times. No, because you were making fun of me. Anyways, moving on. We don't have a new five-star review written on Apple. So if anyone wants to go on Apple right now and leave a written review, I'll read it out on the next episode. Sounds lovely. Sounds terrific. I'd love to read them. Now, Anthony, what is your streaming recommendation for this episode? It's a, it's a movie I'm not sure many people have heard of. It's called Harry Potter's and Sorcer Sorcerer's Stone. Harry Potter's? Yeah, Harry, Harry Potter's and the Sorcerer's Stone. Did you say Sorcerer Stone? <laughs> Harry Potter's and the Sorcerer's Stone. I am sick. <laughs> All that means you can't say Harry I am Ill. Potter singular. I'm ill. Yeah, it prevents you from pluralizing words. It's like uh, one of those funny excuses. I saw a video. This guy's car got hit. <laughs> well, it was parked and he went over and he's like, oh, someone hit my car and his neighbors had video footage of it. And so it was his neighbor. She just backed into his car and then acted like she didn't hit it and drove away. And so he goes up to her. He shows her the video footage. You hit my car. I mean, you just drove away and you hit my car. She's like, sorry, I've been going through a divorce. He's like, How, what does that mean? How does that affect you hitting my car? <laughs> it's have to do with a hit and run. <laughs> you broke the law. <laughs> like, what if she murdered, killed someone with the car? I've been going through a divorce. <laughs> oh, okay. His reaction was like, okay. <laughs> Similar to how your throat caused you to say Harry Potter's. Harry Potter's and the Shusher Stone. <laughs> <laughs> My streaming recommendation is District Nine. It's on Hulu. Nice, nice pick. We should cover that. We should cut. We should get all over that thing. We should cover it, man. It's a good, good movie. It's such a banger. It's a good movie. Movie. All right, let's get back into our best independent films of 2023. We're gonna go with another A24 film and another one that came out earlier in the year. Bo is Afraid, written and directed by Ari Aster. Maybe the most divisive film of the entire year, possibly. Definitely. Rotten Tomatoes critic score. I'm surprised it's fresh at 67%. 
Critic score, audience score is a 71%. IMDb, it's a 6.8. Metacritic, it's 63%. We did an episode on this and we titled it, Bo is Afraid, What the Fuck? Because <laughs> it's a very confusing movie. It's insanely creative. An incredible performance from Joaquin Phoenix. And obviously, I think a lot of people were expecting the third horror film from Ari Aster with this movie. Uh, they were expecting maybe after coming off Hereditary in Midsummer, he'd do something staying in the horror genre. It's a psychological thriller. It's not very scary at all. So I think some people, they went into it expecting something that they didn't want or got something that they, did, got something they didn't expect and maybe didn't like that because this is a movie that it's pretty long. It's cerebral as hell and it's confusing. You know, it requires a, a paying intensely intense attention as well as a second watch. I've seen it twice. You've seen it twice, right? I've only seen it once. You've only seen it once? I saw it once online a couple of months ago after seeing it in theaters. But I think the second watch made me understand it a lot more. There's a lot of great, interesting theories that we talked about in that episode, how you, you have a great theory. I don't want to spoil the movie. But basically, you know, Ariaster puts you in the mind of someone going through intense mental health issues as well as depre- including depression, anxiety, uh, hallucinations because of the treatment from his family, from his mother. He's got intense... He's got a bunch of prescription medications. And so we sort of see the effects of... What all this can do to somebody's mind, we see it done visually in a movie, which I thought was really fascinating and really interesting. It's an insane journey through someone's psychosis, basically. It's also really funny. <laughs> yeah, it's terrible. It's really funny. I loved it. And I think maybe people are beginning to come around to it. We'll see. Because uh, I think it's it's probably his best movie, honestly. It's really it's really that good. I still think Hereditary is his best movie. Yeah. It will, it'll be a cult classic one day, I think. Hopefully. Yeah. I think it's really great. Yeah, it's really, really fucking awesome. Overly hated. Yeah, I think overly hated. We'll see. Maybe people will start, you know, second watches, third watches, appreciate it more. I think so. We'll see. But I also, I love it. Yeah, I know you do. Yeah. I have it in my, it's just outside of my top five. You had it number one for a while, didn't you? For like half the year. I had it at number one before Oppenheimer came out, yeah. Yeah. Because I don't care what people think. If I like something, I'll broadcast it. Good for you, man. <laughs> We live in a day where people are like, I feel like people are afraid to like publicly say they like something that a lot of people hate. Bro, we are Wonka review, yeah. which we just posted last week, a couple weeks ago. We got so many comments saying that people said we got paid to make a review about it because we liked it. Yeah. Dude, I fucking loved I Wonka. I loved it. I gave it four and a half stars. I had a great thing. These people didn't even see it probably. I had such, if you couldn't watch Wonka and have a great time, come on. Yeah. It's a terrific movie. Yeah, they clearly haven't seen it. It's, also, I, it's it doing very well. Filled with joy. I knew it, I knew it would. Yeah, you called that man. Called it, man. All right, moving on to the next film, which is another A24 film. This is just turning into an A24 episode. Basically. We have Priscilla from writer-director Sofia Coppola. This film is an 82% Rotten Tomatoes critic score, a 63% audience score, quite the drop, a 6.9 rating on IMDb, and a 78% rating on Metacritic. So this tells the story of Priscilla Bellew, and her relationship with Elvis Presley, the courtship of her by him, their marriage, uh, the dissolution of their relationship, and then eventually her divorcing him. It's really good. And the lead actress, I'm sorry, can you pull up her name? Sure thing, man. She's, she's wonderful. She's perfectly cast in this role, and she's really dynamic and carries the film. Jacob Lordy is really good as Elvis. I was surprised. He, he did a very good job. It's an interesting... Uh, Kaylee Spaney. Kaylee Spaney. She's really, really great. Um, but it's really fascinating, especially since 
Baz Luhrmann's Elvis came out last year to see a different perspective on Elvis because one of the things I didn't like about Boz's Elvis it was how little that Priscilla was in it. Yeah. She's in just really she's one maiden scene with him and then she's just like there a few times. Uh, she never really had significant impact on the story. A couple arguments and stuff here yeah. and there, nothing really specific, yeah. nothing. Big. Um but this film is it's she's you follow her in every scene. She's in every scene. And you can tell these are real stories and real anecdotes because there's so many little details, so many specific moments that you're like, that has to have happened for it to be remembered and for it to be put in the film. And you learn a lot about Elvis because we've always seen Elvis from the outside. And as the, the famed performer he is, we all know he was a horrible drug addict and Colonel, in a way, destroyed him, especially in the latter half of his career. The Colonel's barely in this film and you only actually hear about him on the phone, which I thought was a smart move because it's... Priscilla really had no interaction with him that much. But it's interesting to see the perspective of Elvis from her because she knew him behind closed doors. She knew him better than anyone did. And what was surprising was Elvis was actually, he was very sweet. He was very sensitive and he was very gentle as a partner most of the time. But then he was also, he could also have a horrible temper. He was controlling. And he, in a lot of ways, basically tried to mold Priscilla into what he wanted her to be. Eventually, Priscilla broke out of that to gain her own independence and lived a life that she that she felt was true to herself as opposed to just being what Elvis wanted her to be. But I think Sofia Coppola did a wonderful job like she always does. It's beautifully shot, really well acted, really interesting story. It's, it's and The story doesn't really have a plot so much as it's just an examination of the relationship and I think it was. I think it needed it because Elvis has had so many adaptations, and it's more. They've always been more celebratory of him. And this film was. It's not like this film was scathing of him, because it did show a lot of really great aspects to him. But I think it was truthful to show that he wasn't like the perfect, amazing rock god that everybody obviously thinks he is. What's interesting is, I, a lot of people don't like this movie because they think it portrays Elvis in a bad light, and it's just like. This is based off in a book by her, his spouse. It's about his ex-wife. It's her perspective. <laughs> so, I mean, you got to understand and have context that a lot of these things really happened. Yeah. So this is what he was really like in a lot of ways. Obviously, cinematically, they changed a little bit. Maybe you don't make him as bad as he was or maybe as good as he was. Who knows? I didn't live with the guy. She did. And I honestly, I liked Elvis a lot, Baz Luhrmann's. I just didn't really enjoy the Colonel character being so heavily involved in the plot of that movie. Yeah, I and think it would have worked better. It's sort of yeah. the narrator, main driving force of the yeah. plot. But I liked he's it like better. the lead. Yeah, he's basically the lead. I didn't love that 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 role and that character. Obviously, he's a despicable person controlling Elvis the way he did. But still, I think I, I was more connected to Priscilla in this interpretation of Elvis in that story versus Elvis from Baz Luhrmann, even though it was a spectacle and they're very different films from a filmmaking perspective. But Sophie is a terrific filmmaker, and Priscilla is excellent. Another great movie from A24, followed by the next movie on our list, which is another movie from A24, <laughs> their most successful movie of the year at the box office in top three all time, I think, for their production company in general, Talk to Me, which is a 94% critic score on Rotten Tomatoes, 82% audience score on Rotten Tomatoes, IMDb, it's a 7.1, which it feels a little low. I'd give this like a 7.4, 7.5. I gave it three and a half. This is where I feel like it's right. Metacritic, it's a 76%. This was written and directed by Michael and Danny Philippou, the famous YouTubers, and this is their directorial debut. Insanely successful film on a very small budget. It grossed around like $60, 70000000 million, right behind Hereditary. 
And also, what was their number one movie? Uh, Everything Everywhere All at Once is their top film yeah. at the box office. Yeah. So it became one of the most successful films A24's ever produced. Return on investment was high as hell. Obviously, the second film is in development. I really enjoyed this horror movie. I love curse movies. And it's about this hand, this artifact that connects people to another plane of reality, a different dimension, basically, or in the dead. And you get to talk to these people for as long as you can, as you want. I like until... to think of it as the connection with limbo. Yeah, sort of like yeah, a, a soul... purgatory sort yeah, of place. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Where souls that maybe haven't completely gone off into an afterlife, whether it's heaven and hell, wherever you believe in in the film. But you get to connect to these spirits and communicate with them. They They communicate through you to the other people in the room. And there are specific words that start the incantation, start the ritual, and specific words that end the ritual so that the spirit leaves your body and you're back to your normal self. And I think the the directors, the, the Philippus, did a great job with this movie because they turned this sort of dark artifact into basically a play on peer pressure with high schoolers, sort of a drug, throwing in social media in the craze of virality with videos and content, mixing that all into horror very smartly and very effectively as well as great lead performance. This movie's scary, but it could have been scarier. I think there could have been more sequences of dread and intense fear like the sequence where we're on this plane, someone's getting... I don't want to spoil it for anyone who hasn't seen it, but there's a very horrific sequence that lasts very short. It's only a couple seconds. But I think if it had more horror, more scares, it would have been a much stronger film. Most of the, the 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 movie mainly tackles mental health, which is obviously an important issue and an important theme and topic that a lot of movies are, are approaching these days. But I think if they had more of the horror elements, it could have been a much stronger movie. But in general, I really enjoyed it. it has a great twist at the end and a great conclusion that's basically ambiguous. You sort of get to decide what happened at the end of the movie, which I really like. And I, I really enjoyed it. You know, I think it might be a little overhyped. It's got kind of called the next hereditary when it really wasn't at that point it didn't really hit that height but i think it's really terrific for a directorial debut for a new kind of horror film just show me something new that's all i want from horror and talk to me really delivered it was very good i i agree i think it was overhyped and then the problem is it didn't live up to that hype and so it was kind of like i was i wasn't sure where that hype came from but it was it was internet man yeah it was very good it had some good good sequences had a great concept a very good ending. I do think that the it took a while to get it going, and then there were come there were some sequences that didn't, really weren't impactful on the plot, that were just like it was kind of like a little bit of fluff in the second at the end of the second half. And it, ironically, it holds you in so well with a terrific opening scene. Yeah, the, the opening's great, and then it, it does really it does slow down quite a bit. And I was surprised that the runtime was only like ninety minutes because it felt longer. Yeah, I agree. It was a movie that felt a lot longer than it was, so I think that it could have been a little tighter. And could have had some longer scares and some longer sequences of horror. I think it would have helped a lot. But that being said, it was still very good. Great concept and really good execution by the brothers. I, I enjoyed it a lot. All right, take us off with John Glazer's. Take it away, Un. It's <laughs> <Anthony's> thing. <laughs> Only at 12 o'clock. <laughs> we just watched Azkaban, so I can't help it. All right, next up we have <clears throat> Jonathan Glazer's new film, the Zone of Interest, which is a 92% Rotten Tomatoes score for critics. Not yet announced for audience score because it hasn't been released wide yet. Eight on IMDb and a 90% critic audience critics, 90% Metacritic score. 
There we go. There you go. Metacritic <laughs> audience. <laughs> now, it's about a Nazi commandant who tries to build the dream life and home for his family right outside the Auschwitz concentration camp walls. It's a masterclass. It's uh, It could be Jonathan Glazer's best film. My favorite might be Under the Skin, but I have to give this film another watch. It's the most interesting Holocaust movie I've seen in a long time. There's really nothing like it because it's... It's told from this perspective, and we've seen movies told from this perspective as well, but the way Jonathan Glazer— Perspective of the Nazis? Perspective of the Nazis, or even with even with perspective of, of Jews, we see the perspective of the Germans as well. So some films show both sides. Some, some films show the perspective of one side. This film shows the perspective of just the Nazis, but very specifically just the commandant and his family. We see other sh- soldiers and stuff, but we don't really see anything else. It's really about the bubble of his home that he and his wife have built just outside the walls of Auschwitz. And it's a really brilliant masterclass of juxtaposition. You see, and it, these things are in the trailer. You see they have a beautiful yard with a pool and kids are playing, and then you see the smoke of the, the train bringing Jews into the camp just in the background. Like, what a, like, there's, the film is filled with juxtapositions like that, which are so uh, mind-blowingly crazy, but did really happen. And also of, like, there's this family unit that is filled with bliss and peace and, and love and joy. And just a few meters away, there's the most horrible suffering imaginable uh, from the existence of in, in history of mankind happening just outside of the walls of their home. And so it's a really interesting take on the, on the film. And Glazer expertly crafts it as in a way, observational, lots of wide lenses, lots of slow scenes, more methodical, not many shots, not many setups, more of just letting these scenes take place. We're not cutting a a lot. There's very long shots in this film. And we're also seeing uh, the different characters in this German family and how they also interact with some of the Jews. There are some Jewish people we see in the film who are the housekeepers of the home. And so in a way... You see that power dynamic displaced where if it's like there's a, if there's like a drop of water on the floor, they might get executed for it. So there's this power dynamic constantly at play within the world. But it's really a really interesting examination of the commandant and, and the family as well. The wife, like I said, played by Sandra Huller, who's also in Anatomy of a Fall. She has quite a big part to play, and it's really fascinating to see their complex relationship in this place. Uh, there's really nothing like it. It's going to be released wider in the coming weeks. Right now, it's only in a couple of markets, but I couldn't recommend it enough. It is it is brutal, and it's very bleak at times. So when you just be aware of that when you walk into this film. But Glazer also does a really, really incredible job of relating the film to present day in a way I've never seen before. I don't want to spoil it, but you'll see it when you watch the film. The, there's really something a really interesting technique that he used in this film that uh, you rarely see in other movies. So that that worked really really well for the film and gave it a great third act. And I, I really enjoyed the film. It was really powerful. Let's move on to a directorial debut from Cord Jefferson, American fiction, and I think Cord Jefferson's a filmmaker to keep your eye on uh, in, in the future. This movie's terrific. It's one of the best critiques on our culture I've seen in years. You know, we haven't really gotten great critiques, accurate critiques of things that have been going on. And American fiction is literally a punch in the face to American academia, 
American entertainment and American publishing. And Jeffrey Wright is perfectly cast as an author who is black. However, he can't sell any of his books because what publishing companies want are specific types of black books from black authors. They don't want a book that he's written that might be very good, and it is a very good book, and he can't sell any books because they want specific things. And what Court Jefferson does is he basically puts a giant microscope on culture right now in terms of how these publishing companies, entertainment industries, whether it's movies, TV shows, publishing companies, and then even academia, they ironically are some of the most racist people you could out there because they want specific things. They pigeonhole persons of colors into insane stereotypes, even though they're saying they're trying to lift people up from stereotypes. They will only consume and sell and produce stereotype material that they produce. They don't want pieces of work that they've done that just represent what they want or what they believe in in their life. They want, ironically, to pigeonhole them into these very specific things, and you can only tell stories about from that perspective. Yeah, in a way, he's saying that from his perspective, and it's so true, there's a couple of great sequences because it's searingly funny. It's I was cackling the whole time. It was great. He was basically saying that, you know, America is really only interested in this fictional account of the black experience, which is black people are they're slaves, they're criminals, they're they're bad people or they're victims rather than Well, they all the, they don't want they want to tell tell stories with only kind of those things. Exactly. That's where the fiction in the title comes from, American fiction. I look at this film as like America is really only interested in this fictional version of the black experience rather than the true version of the black experience which is complex and wide and and all sorts of living types and situations and experiences and and cord expertly wrote this and is and wove it into the screenplay it's one of my favorite scripts of the year it's so uproariously funny i i was dying in the theater but it also has a lot to say it's very insightful and it in a way it torched the media that it in in rare ways that never really happens. And I think that movies like this have to be made and it can put you in an uncomfortable situation. It might make you feel squeamish in a little bit of a way. Like, should I be laughing at this? Is it okay for me to laugh at it? And it is okay to laugh at this. That was Cord's reasoning for making the film and to show how absurd it is our cultures become. And Jeffrey Wright is absolutely outstanding. He's so funny. He balances the humor and the drama perfectly. And on top of that, the film was actually very moving. It's it's part satirical uh, comedy and part family drama as well, and it's very emotional. And the rest of the cast is really fantastic. Sterling K. Brown is hilarious in this movie, and I really really enjoyed the film. It's one of my favorites of the year. And it's, there's some magic surrealism going in, sort of stranger than fiction kind of elements. And you're sort of put in the head space of what a writer is, what a writer does, what's going on in their head as they're writing a book or writing something. And his character, like I said, he can't sell any of his books. So as a joke, as an fu to the publishing companies, he writes the most ridiculous, stereotypical thing that he could sell. And as a joke, but ends up getting a book deal, getting a movie deal, and gets gets taken so far it's destroying his psyche it's destroying his relationships there's a lot of loss in this movie it's, it de- this movie deals with grief and loss and trauma as well and this guy is just from an affluent background and he's just as a joke because he can't take it anymore 
he does this. And he also gets put on leave from uh, the college that he's been teaching at because <laughs> the opening scene's uh, incredible. Yeah. The opening scene gets you prepared for what you're about to watch. I don't want to spoil it, but it really sets the mood, sets the tone. Cord Jefferson, like I said, I can't wait to see what he's got cooking after this movie because it was terrific and I really loved it. One of the funniest movies of the year. It was uh, The opening was reminiscent of the, the school scene in Tar. Similar. Same, similar vibes. Similar, except yeah. <laughs> more ferocious in a lot of ways <laughs> and more of a critique on a lot of what's going on in academia. And ironically, with American fiction, I feel like many of the people, if not all the people that are in the crosshairs and are the target of this movie, of the critiques, they might not. They still won't even understand that they're the butt of the joke. Yeah, that this movie's talking about them. Exactly. They'll still like the clapping seals, like the trailer. We have the white woman jumps up on, and she's the first person to clap. Yeah. It's gonna be like that. Yeah. They're not. They're gonna clap at this as well, not realize that they're in the target of the movie. Exactly. It's really, <laughs> really brilliant writing. I loved it. It's in my top ten. It's it's terrific. Next up, we have Yorgos Lanthimos's incredible new film. Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Willem Dafoe, Rami Youssef, and a great ensemble of other actors, as well as Mark Ruffalo. This movie is gorgeous, stunning, hilarious, darkly comedic, very sexual, and just a fun story about freedom, about finding self-identity, about becoming a woman in this complicated world. Mixed with great surrealism, abstract artistry, uh, the set design is incredible, cinematography is top-notch. We get a blend of aspect ratios and kinds of film formats, black and white in color, just like with Maestro. And again, it's really cool to see Yogos Lanthimos work with a big budget on a grand scale. His films have always been very odd, challenging, and difficult for mainstream audiences, and this is no different from that. And it's really a sensational Artist, artistic achievement. Uh, the entire team, I expect this film to get nominated for costume design, maybe for cinematography, but definitely production design. It possibly could win production design. And overall, it was a really fun time. It was laugh-out-loud funny. Um, the sex was hilarious and ridiculous. The characters were absurd. Mark Ruffalo, I didn't know he was this funny, but he just he really sells the comedy in this one. And I was obviously impressed as you were with everything about this movie. So if you haven't seen Poor Things, add it to your watch list and try to see it in theaters while it's still playing. All right, let's finish up our list with a Netflix release. However, it was independently produced and it was picked up by Netflix. May, December, written and directed by Todd Haynes, produced by Natalie Portman. This film is a 91% critic rating on Rotten Tomatoes and an 68% audience rating. So that's the biggest difference we've seen so far today. It is in seven on IMDb and an 85% on Metacritic. 20 years after their notorious tabloid romance, a married couple buckle under the pressure when a Hollywood actress meets them to do research for a film about their past. So Julianne Moore and the wonderful Charles Melton, who he's just blew me away in this role, they are a married couple. However, they got together when he was 14 and she was in her 20s. So it became a huge scandal in the community and in America. They were tabloid material for years. There were TV shows, interviews, talk shows, all sorts of things made about them uh, over the past decade. But now things have quieted down and they're living a relatively quiet life, you could say, in her hometown. However, the film adaptation of their story is in pre-production and Natalie Portman plays the lead actress who will be playing 
Julianne Moore's character. So she's come to research them for a week, interview family and friends, stay with them, really get a sense for who the, the woman is as a human being. And it's really just some of the best acting of the year. The three of them are incredible, dynamic. Todd Haynes is a really interesting filmmaker. Uh, his most famous film so far is Carol. Just a really creative guy. Tells interesting stories. And then this is just a really brilliant co- like concept for uh, a film's beginning. And then the story goes in un- unexpected areas. And Natalie Portman's character ends up being a little bit more nefarious than you thought going into the film. And she, in a way, starts destroying their lives and affecting their lives negatively. And it, by halfway through the film, you're like, what exactly does she want? It's definitely more than just learning about this role. And how far and she's willing to go as far as it takes to properly immerse herself into the role of this woman played by Julianne Moore. And it's really, really interesting film. Couldn't recommend it enough. It's on Netflix, and it's going to be nominated for some awards. I don't expect the Best Picture nomination, but I do expect a nomination for Charles Melton who's fabulous in the film. And I could definitely see Julianne Moore and Natalie Portman also getting nods as well as Todd Haynes as a writer. It's it's, it's a hot movie. It's, it's a hot movie on social media. Not too. a writer as director, I'm sorry. Yeah. Not, not a writer. I can definitely see those nominations happening. But again, it's been a great year for independent it movies. It has. And there's several that didn't make this list, and I'm sure several that you wish we added to our list, but we didn't. <laughs> tough okay. tough cookie. We did not. <laughs> did not. But you can add to your list. Those but again, be- some movies, like we said, like Saltburn, you might assume that's an independent film, but it's actually not. MGM, Amazon. Yeah. But that wraps our episode on the our 12 favorite independent films from 2023. If you haven't seen any of these or some of these, we cannot recommend them enough. Get into a theater for some of these if you can in December and January. And I'm sure a lot of them will be streaming very soon. So definitely check them out if you get the chance. They are all terrific. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Raiders of the Lost Podcast. If you're watching on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe, like, leave a comment, leave those five-star ratings and reviews on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, and also become a patron at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast. Take care, everybody. See you next time. This episode was executive produced by our chosen one patrons, Cody Moen, Andrew Hagen, Benjamin Cook, Calvin Murphy Griggs, Darian, Tyler McFly, and Sal Koching. Our Chosen One patrons are our biggest supporters. Thank you so much. Thank you for watching Raiders of the Lost Podcast. Be sure to hit that subscribe button. Hit the like button as well. Notifications for sure. Listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, everywhere. You can listen to podcasts. And be sure to check out this other content we have on our YouTube channel.